0: In the book of Revelation, I want to start by asking you this question. If you heard me invite somebody, and I said to them, Hey, would you like to join me for the weekend events? And you heard their reply was something of the sorts of, Yeah, thanks, but no thanks. I kind of feel awkward at those gatherings. I don't really know all the songs. I don't know the liturgies, the chants. I feel awkward when I'm sitting next to somebody and they have like their hands raised up singing. And you know what? I just don't know when to stand and when to sit. And honestly, I hear the parking is atrocious. <laughs> and I only get 2 days off a week and I'd rather just sleep in. You probably think I invited him to church. To a worship service. This is probably what you have in mind when you think of a worship service. Christians gathered in a place, and they're singing the songs, and they know when to stand and when to sit. They know the liturgies. They know the outfits to wear, what not to wear. You're thinking of a religious activity that we would call worship. But I didn't invite them to church. I invited him to the CU Buff football game. (laughs) And there's a reality that worship is a human activity, and so we, we fill stadiums and we lift our hands and we sing the songs. We go to concerts and we put our favorite musicians in the middle and we raise our hands and we dress like them and we worship. There are so many avenues of worship for worship is a human activity. There are certain clubs that we belong to, and we know just the right time to raise the lightsaber. And we all share the same outfits, and we know all the lingo. There's rallies that we gather at and make sure we lift up flags high. Worship is a human activity in which even the world from time to time Gathers together to worship. Worship is not simply a religious activity, it is a human activity, a human endeavor that you are built to do. So, what is worship? Well, I looked up a couple definitions of worship. This simply stated, worship. Is the adoration or devotion shown toward a person or principle? It's honor given to someone in recognition of their merit. It's something or someone that you see value, merit in, and then your activities, what you're willing to participate, recognizes that merit. In some ways, I want you to think of the word worship as worth-ship. Worship is worth-ship. It's something that you find worthy to give your time, attention, and resources to. This is something that you find worthy to put on your calendar, something that you find worthy to schedule other events around. You find it worthy to Purchase tickets, to direct money there, to buy swag and dress yourself in it, to take on an identity and worship something or someone. Worship is a human activity in which we attribute worth. And so it's not something unusual in which we do in this room. We say God is worthy of scheduling time, our attention, our resources to him. Worship is an activity that all human beings participate in. We just sometimes have different objects that we worship. And at these worship services, they have the most bizarre creatures. And so at some worship services, like in Kentucky, (laughs) what is Big Red? Like, how would you describe this to somebody? It's like, I went to this ceremony, this service, everyone's raising their hands, and then this thing just like ran out of the tunnel. Or you went to this worship ceremony, and one of the recipients received an award. How do you describe that to somebody? Or perhaps you went down and you saw a few weeks ago the Raiders were in town? What is that? Or perhaps you were traveling and you hit Milan for its fashion week? I mean, just, just, just pause right there on that, on that frame. You tell somebody, I went to this worship service and at the centerpiece was this runway and they had the most bizarre creatures. This creature had like four heads. One head of a face of a a human and then there was the the head of a flamingo and then there was a turtle and what appeared to be a tiger. And your friends would say, where did you go? (laughs) Worship services is what humans do. We find something worthy and we give it its our attention. We make it the centerpiece of our life. And honestly, the creatures we even become are so bizarre. And so perhaps with that in your mind, let's go to Revelation chapter four, it won't seem all that foreign. Chapter 4, verse 1. I'm going to read the whole thing. So he's just read these letters to the churches. And he says, After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Chapter 4 and 5 is what the book of Revelation is all about. If you want to know what the book of Revelation is all about, it's chapter 4 and chapter 5. Verse 2. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelians. Those are gemstones. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald, Around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne was were burning seven torches of fire which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was as it were a sea of glass like crystal worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. I told you Revelation is all about chapters four and five. And when you open up chapter four, what you see is a worship service going on in heaven. And the centerpiece of this worship service is God himself. And it's a worship service that has some unusual characters there. But worship is not a foreign concept to us. And all of the characters, the creatures that are there are recognizing his worth. I love what Keener says about this. Craig Keener says, worship is not the invention of nice things to say about God. It is the recognition of who God already is, as well as what he has already done or promised to do, and how worthy he is of our praises. That's what's going on in heaven, is this worship service that recognizes, not not trying to invent, like what what should we say today about God? It's just recognizing whose presence you're in and who he is and attributing praise to him. And there is song happening and then there is liturgy happening. Back in verse 8, you can see all the creatures never stop singing, Holy, 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 being other, set apart, are you? God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. You see that there's a liturgy, things to say at this worship service. Verse 11, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. You're the author of all of this, and we recognize that. And so worthy are you to receive our attention, our time, our resources, our crowns. Worthy are you. Now, in this worship service has some unique creatures, and oftentimes we get hung up on the the imagery of Revelation instead of the purpose of Revelation. So let's look at a little bit of the imagery to unpack the purpose of it. So there are these unique creatures, and one of the things you have to understand in the book of Revelation that we have yet to talk about is one of the ways that John loves to use imagery is through numerical values of numbers. And we're going to see that there are good numbers and there are bad numbers. And now immediately you're thinking, okay, this book just got weird. But it doesn't. So just listen to, listen to this analogy. Kristen and I are going to be flying on Friday the 13th of October why'd you chuckle the 13th it's like someone came to me and said you're really gonna travel on the 13th it's like well yeah so why 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 does 13 matter why is that any different than the 12th or the 14th I mean people have constructed buildings in America skipping the 13th floor that's weird it's just a number right but it kind con- of it connotes something to us It's oh man it's it's bad luck it's evil it's wrong you want nothing to do with it. And so you have numbers in your own language, you seem to know the numbers of John's language. And so there are three numbers that pop up that I want to pay attention to that happen in this chapter, and many more numbers that we'll see in the book of Revelation. So the three numbers in the book of Revelation that we're going to look at in this chapter are 4, 7, and 12. The first number, 4, this is, this is giving us an idea of the full and complete or total coverage most often in view of God's creation. So it's the fullness, the completeness of his creation. So in the book of Revelation, you'll see the angels are standing at the four corners of the earth. Does that mean the earth has four corners and it's flat or square? No, it's, it's imagery to help you understand there's his messengers at the fullness of the earth. He'll say that every tribe, tongue, nation, and language give Jesus worship. That's four. So it's the fullness of humanity is attributing worship to him. And so we see that four means the full and total coverage specifically to creation. Then we see this number seven. We've already seen it in chapter one in, in the churches. Seven is also connoting something of completeness, but just a bit differently. Seven is the completeness, fullness, totality, really, of perfection. And so this is going to be associated with God Himself. It's the perfectness of God. And so what we see described in chapter four is that the Spirit of God, the seven spirits of God. Is there seven? No, it's the full, complete, perfect Spirit of God. And then there's another number you got to pay attention to that's number 12. Again, 12 connotes something about fullness fullness and completeness often with humanity in mind and with special reference to the saints, the believers. And so just think in your Bible, Old Testament, 12 tribes of Israel. Think of your New Testament, the 12 disciples or 12 apostles. And you're going to see multiples of these numbers, multiples of 12 throughout the book of Revelation, 12. Here we see 24. You're going to see 144,000. It's a, it's a picture of the fullness, completeness, particularly to the saints, the, the followers of God. And so with an understanding of John's language in your mind now, we go back to our scene in Revelation 4, and he says there's four creatures, and they have, they have the likeness of them. I'm, I'm trying to tell you what I saw. It's wild. But there's four creatures. So he's going to talk about the fullness of the creation, now, you can try to press the details and say, okay, is he, is he talking about the, the characters? Like, does the face of an eagle talk about, like, the, the creatures of the air, and then the, the face of an ox is the, the face of all the domestic animals, and then the face of a lion is, is the wild animals, and the face of a human is, is the rational animals? Maybe. Or is it their characteristics of them? Meaning, like, well, it's strong for the lion, it's humility for ox, It's rational for human. It's swiftness for the eagle. Maybe. What's the point? The point is all of his creatures in creation are in attendance around the centerpiece of God's throne. And all the creatures worship. They say, worthy are you. All the creatures see God's Worth, And then they're surrounded by 24 elders. And perhaps this is just a simple, plain reading of the text to describe the covenant people. The covenant people that are saved by grace in Christ, Israel and the church, are gathered around, again, the throne room of God, saying... Worthy are you. And so if you just if you step back and say, okay, what's the point of Revelation 4? Is that the fullness, completeness of all the creatures of the cosmos and all the people who've been saved under the covenants have God as the centerpiece of heaven and worship Him. Now that reorients a lot of us in our picture of heaven we have a very man-centered view of heaven. Like when I get there, I hope they have like the best golf courses and I'm gonna hang out next to the slushy machine. And maybe there's an imagination you can have of how wonderful heaven will be, but Revelation 4 is to tell you you're not the center of it. The centerpiece of heaven is the throne of God and all of creation worships him. That's chapter 4. That's the reality that's going on. Now, some of us will go, okay, then what's with the aesthetics? Like, what's with the thunder and the lightning? What's with the rainbow? All of these aesthetics are to help draw you back into the story of where we have seen God's presence before. So thunder and lightning. You think of, of Sinai, the rainbow. You think of God's judgment and grace in Noah. You think of the gemstones that are marked out by the priesthood. This is the presence of God. In fact, this view of heaven is not the first time we've seen this. It's not as though John sees a vision of something that will one day happen, will one day become a reality. No, he has shown what is reality right now. It is the realest real, the truest true, what we would call ultimate reality. Reality. So if you want to take some notes or want to follow along in your Bibles, open them up. We'll go to Daniel chapter 7. On your way to Daniel chapter 7, remember the, the story of Job, which is probably one of the oldest stories in the Bible, happened sometime after Noah, before Abraham, opens up with a view of the throne room, of the reality of heaven, God at the centerpiece, and his counsel around him. And then we come to Daniel chapter 7, and in Daniel chapter 7, verse 9... Daniel says, as I looked, this is what he saw. As I looked, thrones were placed and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and his hair of his head was pure like wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand and and thousands upon thousands served him. And 10,000's times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. So John has seen this reality. There's another one named Ezekiel. Go to Ezekiel chapter 1. We'll poke around here. That's one book before Daniel. Ezekiel chapter 1. Ezekiel has the same vision of God's throne room. Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 4. As I looked, behold... Stormy wind came out of the north and a great cloud with brightness around it and fire flashing forth continually. And in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming metal, and from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was the appearance they had, a human likeness. But each had four faces and each of them had four wings. Verse 22. Over the heads of the living creatures, there was the likeness of an expanse shining like awe inspiring crystal, spread above their heads like a sea. Verse 26, and above the expanse over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire gemstones. And seated above the likeness of the throne was a likeness with a human presence. There was brightness around him. Verse 28. Like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, a rainbow, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Another prophet, Isaiah, chapter 6, verse 12. Isaiah is shown this same reality. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Do you understand that Revelation 4 is not simply a picture of a reality to come one day? What John has shown here is something that God has shown others throughout human history of the reality of his sovereign reign through all of time. The one who was and is and is to come, the Alpha and the Omega. Human history has had its movements from being agrarian to industrial, to living in tents, to living in houses. But the one true reality, the ultimate reality, is God enthroned in heaven, worshiped by his company. And no matter what we've experienced here on earth, the true constant reality that was and is and will be sure for all time is God enthroned. That's the surest truest reality. And it's interesting to me that those who get a picture of it, like John here, like Isaiah, like Ezekiel, like Daniel, like we got in the book of Job, when you get a picture of it, it's to help people who are in the midst of suffering, in the midst of their hardship. This is John in in the midst of tribulation. He's given this vision. Because I think when there's suffering and there's hardship, like your world closes in on you, doesn't it? And it feels like ultimate reality. Like, I can't even imagine a day tomorrow. I can't even imagine living a life outside of this suffering, outside of this pain, outside of this hardship. And what God does in his kindness is help you see things as they really are. God enthroned sovereign over all. And what I love is that, John, or that Revelation 4 opens with him coming through an open door. Is that he has a door that's open to you so that you can come into and see and observe what's really going on in the world. Now think about that for a second. Is there a door that you would love to peer behind, but it's closed to you? I asked this question to several people this week. What door would you like to see behind? They said, oh man, I'd like to see the secret Coca-Cola recipe. (laughs) Or I really want to see Area 51. I want to see behind the closed door of the Oval Office. I want to see behind the closed door of what's going on at my company, someone who's really mature. Who shall not be named, but sounds like Jenny Fleetmeyer, <laughs> said, I want, I want the door to my kids' hearts. And it's like, oh, Jenny, that's so good. That's so much better than I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> but what's behind the door that's closed? It's like, oh, it's the real story. And you don't get access to it. You don't have the right clearance. You don't have the right codes, you don't have the right privilege, you don't have the right credentials, and here God says, my, my door's open to you. My, the door of my throne room so that you can understand what's true, true, real, real, ultimate reality is open to you. And so if you would like to be able to interpret what's happening in your life, why don't you come into the throne room of God So that you would have eyes to see ultimate reality. So the question to reflect on is what do we worship? For what we worship, we are becoming. James Smith makes this point. We are what we love. It is a formational practice of the human heart to make something its centerpiece. And then be formed into its likeness. J. Smith makes these, or K.A. Smith makes these, these points about looking at just, just communities in general. He says, Look at a community and see if you can determine what they worship based on the biggest buildings or the centerpiece of what they gather around. So, thinking about New York, what are the biggest buildings in New York? What is the centerpiece of New York? It's Manhattan, the financial district. What would you say New York worships? It's money. It's not that hard to figure out. Move over to Washington and the biggest monuments, the biggest buildings, like the White House, the Capitol, the Supreme Court. What, is, what does Washington worship? It's probably power. Right. Erie, Colorado. <laughs> What's the biggest building in our, in our city? Is the community center. What have we devoted the most landscape to? Parks. What did most of us participate in yesterday? Sports. What does our community worship? Like these are the questions to start asking. And then say, how about you? What, what have you put as the centerpiece of your heart? Like, what have you scheduled on your calendar that takes the most time? What have you directed the most attention to, given the most resources towards? For some of us, it's just like, it's just me. Like, I'm the centerpiece of worship. Others, it's my children, my family, health. This is a good question to reflect on. For what we worship, we are being formed into. It's just the practice of the human experience. So what have we put as the centerpiece? Now, what does Revelation then challenge to become the centerpiece? God. Now, now it's not because God has to become the centerpiece, it's that I have to recognize him as the centerpiece. See, when we talk about worship, I'm not actually asking anyone in this room, even if you have no faith, I'm not asking anyone in this room to do something they're not already doing. Revelation 4 is not asking you to start doing something that you're not already doing. What Revelation 4 is asking, what Revelation 4 is inviting you to do is to assess if the object of your worship is truly worthy of your life. Or is there something better? And what you see in heaven with all of these creatures is that God himself is the worship, and they find him worthy. Some of these creatures, it says they has eyes all over their body. That's weird. But I think John's trying to write, like, what am I seeing here? I'm seeing creatures with eyes all over their body. I mean, they can see everything. They get to see like maybe human history, full words. Maybe they get to see as things are. get to see all the human inventions. And they get to say, God, you are worthy. What happens to me, maybe this happens to you, but I see something that I think is worthy, and I'm like, okay, I'm scheduling it on my calendar. I'm buying tickets for it. I'm getting a hotel room. We're getting flights, and we go do it. And I'm super let down. And I say this to myself. Maybe you've said this to yourself. Well, that wasn't worth it. Oh, you said it too. It's like, oh, that, that wasn't as worthy as I thought it would be. And here are the creatures with all the eyes to see all of that. They see all of it, and they say, worthy are you. There's no FOMO here. No fear of missing out. There's no like, man, I really wish I would have got to experience this in my life. I'm really bummed I had to sacrifice for that. No, all eyes, Are on him, and they say, worthy, worthy, worthy are you. Think about this, on the heels of the letters to the churches. I think the churches, when they heard their rebuke, asked this question. Is it worthy of us to repent and do what God's called us to? Remember Ephesus? They get called out for loving what's true, loving what's right, but having forsaken their first love loving God and loving others. And that takes a massive adjustment in their life to begin to practice the works of mercy and grace again. And I bet this church asked, is he really worth it? And they moved over to Thyatira. And Thyatira, they were praised for their works of grace and compassion for people, but they had lost sight of truth. And so they were no longer standing up for what was true. And God was calling them to stand up for what is true. And I bet they asked themselves, like, is it worth it? If we speak up for truth, we know we're going to get flack from people. Is he worth it? And we looked at Laodicea, and Laodicea had compromised because they became complacent. Like, they weren't really hot or cold. They were just kind of lukewarm, hanging out in the middle. And God said, you you make me sick. And for them to kind of, like, grow up in their truth and in their grace and have zeal for the Lord again, that was going to take some work. Is it worth it? And we look at the churches before that who were in immense suffering, that Jesus was acquainted with their poverty and their hardships. And I bet you they asked, is it worth it? And here you see Revelation 4, where all of the creatures of the earth and all of the cosmos and all of the covenant people who have come through suffering, who have forsaken things, who have missed out on opportunities, say, oh, you, you you're worth it. Like, I didn't miss out on anything. Worthy are you. I love what it says here in Revelation 4, verse 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all this. Like, worthy are you because you created us. We stand before you because you made us. You created all things, and by your will, like you're choosing, we exist. Like the only reason we have, have breath in our lungs is because you choose by your will to uphold us. And so again, Revelation 4 is an invitation to reconsider the object of your worship. Everyone in this room has one. Nancy Guthrie, who writes a commentary on Revelation, some of you have asked me if if I've read it. I love it. I think it's a good, good read. She writes, To worship is to let the worth and wonder of God sink in so that you respond in a wholehearted reorientation of your life. Like, everything about me, where I devote my time, attention, resources, gets reshaped, around seeing God, who is the only object of true worth. And having our eyes fixed here helps interpret everything that we experience now. This is what the apostle Paul writes. Remember, Paul was another person who had the the privilege of seeing these things. And, And Paul writes this, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He simply says, so we do not lose heart. Like, life might be really hard for you right now. This should be for you. Don't lose heart. So we do not lose heart, though our outer, selves is, our outer self is wasting away. Like we have physical ailments. We have challenges. But this, sorry, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction. That's what he calls our life right now. Light and momentary. I know it doesn't feel light, and I know it doesn't feel momentary, but in view of Revelation 4 it is. This light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal, everlasting weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Now, that's weird. How do you look and fix your eyes on something that is unseen? You need a revelation. That's a revelation for us, for for you to have your eyes see what is unseen right now. The truest true, the realest real, the ultimate reality. The things that are actually permanent, that are eternal. Everything you see right now is temporary. Every pain you experience right now is temporary. Everything you think it's worth to give your whole life effort to is temporary, except one thing, is God himself. That is eternal. And so what Revelation shows us is that God is the fullness and foreverness of the joy that we are all seeking. That's what Revelation four is. Is this is the true object that fills you, that doesn't leave you unsatisfied, and is forever, so that it will never end in the presence of God. Now, the rest of the book is answering this one question: How does the reality of heaven become the reality of earth? We pray this, thy will be done, your will be done on earth as it is currently being done in heaven. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the rest of Revelation is gonna answer, how does that prayer get answered? It's gonna be fun. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we give you thanks for opening a door that could have remained closed to many. We give you thanks for giving us eyes to see ultimate reality, God enthroned, and all of creation, all of your promises, all of your people, worshiping you. And so, Father, may we join heaven this morning. May this company here in Erie do what heaven is doing and worship you. Give us eyes to reinterpret everything that we are experiencing now in light of eternity with God. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.